All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. Good to hear your voices as we sing the gospel to one another and to our Lord together. We're going to study his word. And so if you'd open up your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. All right, Hebrews 13. I'm going to read just a couple of verses and then we'll go to work. Hebrews 13, verse 1 and 2. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. So hospitality is, it's a New Testament command. We're not, we're not asked to pray about whether we're supposed to be hospitable. We're, we're told to be hospitable. Do not neglect to show hospitality. And there are many other places that this is urged upon us as followers of Jesus. But hospitality is one of those New Testament commands that reaches in both directions. It reaches back to strengthen the body of Christ, to strengthen our work as a church and our life and family. And it also reaches out beyond us to those outside the walls of the church to love them and welcome them and call them, ultimately call them in to faith in Jesus Christ. So you see in the early church, you see both of those rhythms. You see the early church together in Acts chapter two and they're breaking bread and they're fellowshipping and they're in each other's houses, right? So there's, there's gladness, there's joy, there's food around the table. You see that happening. They're providing for one another's needs. They find out that somebody's burdened or somebody's going through something and they're like, hey, I'll, I'll sell a house to provide for some things that are going on in your life financially. There's just all kinds of incredible warmth of fellowship and friendship in the body of Christ. But also, what you see is them, the early church, following the example of Jesus, our Lord. And what did Jesus do? He ate so often with what we might call the unchurched. He's sitting down and he's eating, as his critics would say, you, you always seem to be at tables with unbelievers. <laughs> you eat with tax collectors and sinners. You eat with people who are on the outside rather than people who are on the inside. One author who studied Luke's gospel in a keen way and wrote a book about it, he said this, in Luke's gospel in particular, in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. In other words, what's unpacked in the rest of the book is that Jesus failed to subscribe to the Pharisees' definition of who's clean enough to join us for dinner. He pushed the envelope in that area and people just kept getting upset. The religious elites of that time, the first century, kept getting more and more upset at who he happened to be sitting with over the meal. In our house, when our kids were young, they, uh, they had a Thomas the Train set, and this is just one piece from the Thomas the Train set. And so whenever we have people over to our house and if they have littles, out comes this Thomas the Train set. We don't have all the toys that our kids ever played with at that age. We still have this, and so this comes out. And this is one particular piece in our Thomas the Train set where you got obviously two different options, right? So once you put the whole thing together, this option lets you go back around this loop and there's various things in stores and stuff set. You can go around this loop. And then this one allows you to kind of leave the loop and go further and beyond to other places on the track. And I'm submitting to you that Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 is this piece. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 is, is don't stop loving your brothers. Stay in the loop. Continue in this because the church needs strength. The church needs hospitality. The church needs welcome. But... It also says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Don't neglect to leave the loop and get outside and invite people into faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope we're going to see when we look at this text together is hospitality is the gift that blesses both the church and the world. 
It serves the ministry of the body and it serves the mission of the gospel advanced outside the church. So what's it look like? The name of this message is Gospel Homes. What does it look like to bring the gospel home to your house, to your kitchen table? What's that look like for us to practice hospitality intentionally? So a couple of things. Number one, if you're taking notes, family. We love one another. And you see that family language is used right there in verse one. Let brotherly love continue. So these are people who are not associated by human blood. They're not necessarily in the same family coming from the same lineage. But, but he's saying there's a brotherhood. There, there are sisters. There are brothers. We have a family of God and let the brotherly love continue. You think about, I'm going to try to reinforce what the writer of Hebrews is saying by taking us to other places in scripture. You're not gonna have to turn there, we'll bring it up on the screen. But here's what the apostle John says to unpack some of that same idea. First John three fourteen, we know that we have passed from death to life because, because what? Because we love our brothers and sisters. What's that verse saying? That's John saying, One of the ways that we know we have signs of life, we have the vital signs, we're alive to God, is by the way that we love each other, by the way we run around the loop and serve one another, welcome within the body of Christ and bring people to our own tables. So let brotherly love continue. We could unpack that in a number of different ways. Here's one. Let brotherly love continue means we meet one another's needs. We meet one another's needs. So in the early church, Again, they were making sure if there was a need going on in your life, we wanted to know about it. If there was something you needed provision for, you couldn't get to the end of the month, we wanted to know about it. The church was meeting those kinds of needs. But they were also at each other's houses. Here's uh, the early church. You get to listen in on it in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Luke writes, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. So they're not just all going to the temple and everything that happens happens there at that central location. They decentralize and they go to each other's houses and what do they do? They eat at each other's houses. It goes on to say they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So when you hear those verses, basically Luke is letting you see the church at the beginning and hear the church at the beginning. And what you see is them sitting at tables, feasts spread across the tables and everybody's eating. Past the mayo, past the mashed potatoes, right there. You, hear, you see that happening and you hear something and the sound you hear, he says, is joyful and sincere hearts. There's joy, there's gladness around the table. These people know each other. These people weren't forced into this environment. They love being here. They love one another. But it's interesting, right there in that same verse that I just read, it says, and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. The people outside the church were hearing, eavesdropping on, looking outside the window pane, looking into the life of the church, and there was something of a magnetism that was drawing people from the outside in. It went on to say, every day the Lord was adding to their number people who were being saved. So people on the outside were coming onto the inside as they saw the way that the church loved each other. So let brotherly love continue in our passage here is unpacked in the New Testament as friendship around the table, as a sense of belonging in the family of faith. So it's like a family. The next point is share one another's burdens. 
It's what we do in the body. We share one another's burdens. Here's what our passage goes on to say in verse three, Hebrews 13, verse three. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. So this is not just compassion for people who were believers who had been jailed for their faith, who were in prison. But this, this is a placeholder for all manner of suffering that the body experienced, the rest of the body experienced it with them. He says, think about the people who are in your fellowship who are being mistreated and live toward them as if you felt the mistreatment yourself. That's how empathetic, that's how close in you are to the things that are going on in their lives. Romans chapter 12 gives this vision of the church and how connected it is. It says, we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. So there's, there's a kind of emotional empathy. If there's joy in you, there's joy in us. We're feeling it. We're joining in the celebration. If there's weeping and burden in you, there's burden in us because we're throwing our shoulder underneath the burden that you're feeling. You think about our, our cultural moment right now, and there is, this is no surprise and it's no secret, there is a crisis of loneliness in our world today. There's a crisis of isolation in our world today. And we don't, we don't do well in isolation. That includes introverts. None of us can flourish in total isolation. I read a story about an elderly woman named Natalie in Sydney, Australia, and she lived in the same house, same block, same house, for 70 years. And one of the neighbors, an elderly lady, uh, reached out to law enforcement and said, I can't get a hold of my friend Natalie, or this woman that I've met before named Natalie, and I can't get a hold of her, I can't reach her. And so the officials went over to the house and they found Natalie. And she had died of natural causes, apparently, eight years earlier. Police found no evidence of breaking in or a crime of any kind, and yet the writer of the article said, but there was a crime. Not the crime, the kind of crime suspects are handcuffed and jailed for, but a crime of forgetting, a crime of isolation. The article was entitled, I Miss the Good Old Days When People Noticed If You Died. There's a stinger in the end, right? I think in the modern American church, we can forget that the most compelling things the early church did were not under moving lights and haze machines, on Sunday morning, the most compelling things the early church did was in orphanages, in hospitals, at sick beds, people who were suffering. Sometimes the attitude of Cain seeps into the life of the church. Remember Cain's response when, when the Lord asked him and says, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? That was his way of just basically sloughing off the question, saying, am I supposed to care? He's a grown man. He can make himself known. He can be found, right? Am I supposed to care? The answer to the question was, yes, you're supposed to care. Yes, you're on the hook for knowing where your brother is and how your brother's doing. That attitude can get into the church as well, where we just basically kind of show up for the, the Sunday show and we don't actually relate to one another and grow deep in fellowship and get to know others and be known by others. And nobody ever knows the struggles that's going on 
in our lives right now, right? So what's her trial have to do with me? What's his addiction issues have to do with me? What does their crumbling marriage have to do with me? The answer is everything has everything to do with you, has everything to do with me. Sometimes I think the, the, the thing that can sometimes ironically get in the way of church care are church programs. It's the schedule that we make you keep in church life, right? I've, I've been in church settings and churches where if you went to everything the church expected you to be at, there were so many all calls, you wouldn't have time to eat dinner with your own family, much less Coach T-Ball or get to know somebody outside the church. You're just basically living with church people at all times, right? You got, you're in four different small groups. You're in 19 different Bible studies. You go to all our 30 worship nights annually. You, go, you volunteer at our 14 serve days, right? And next thing you know, all your time is accounted for. I wonder if gospel mission sometimes can't happen because we're so busy becoming super Christians. So basically, at the end of the day, you've got four types of people. You have the church, the unchurched, the dechurched, and the overchurched. We're called to meet one another's needs. We're called to share one another's burdens, and we're called to give one another grace. What's that mean? It means if you're struggling, the church is called to help. If you're tired, if you're grieving, let me just say this to anyone who's here this morning who came in tired, who came in grieving. You're in a season of life where you are barely hanging on. Your faith is threadbare. You don't have to be up this morning. You, you don't have to put on airs. We don't, we're not asking anybody to fake it to make it. You don't have to produce to belong here. Your, your output, your contribution, your production is not what tethers you to belonging. Your believing tethers you to belonging. So what do we do? We're not producers in that way. We're believers. We believe in Jesus. We cling to him. We cling to his cross for the forgiveness for our sins. We cling to his strength that meets us in our weakness. We cling to his finished work on the cross that releases us from what I'm calling frenetic spirituality. You're going to have days where you feel so low and you feel you contribute so little and you stand to sing when the church is supposed to stand and sing and you stand up and the words don't come out. And what I just want to say is, that's all right. You can be healed by Jesus under the words of the gospel that are sung by other people into your ears until it clicks, until it starts making sense again. So let me just say, you know, I was hesitant to even use the term too strong for these couple of years, partly for this reason. How does that land on people? Does that land on tired believers who are walking through difficult seasons of life? Does that land on them like, you know what we are? We're the church of the Navy SEALs. All of us are too strong. That's the, you know what you came for. You came and you got the Navy SEALs church, right? There's good news. Here's another way to think about too strong. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. What's that mean practically? It means if you're not hanging by a thread this morning, we need you engaged. 
Because here's the deal. If you're strong and flourishing in Christ, certainly not perfect, but if you're strong in Christ this morning, your faith is intact in him. When God makes you strong, he makes you strong for others. When God makes you strong, he makes you strong so you can hold up those whose strength is failing. That's the beauty of the church. So family, we love one another. Two, haven, we invite others in. We invite others in, in verse two. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels and guests without knowing it. So a couple of ways to think about hospitality. We're called to open-handed generosity. So some of you might have another translation of the Bible besides the one that I'm reading here, the English Standard Version, and a number of other versions will have it basically like this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And they're picking up on something that is Inside the word hospitality, in the Greek word, in the original language, in the Greek word is the word strangers. So perhaps you've heard the term xenophobia. A xenophobia means stranger fear, literally. Xena, strangers, phobia means fear, fear of strangers. He's not talking about xenophobia, he's talking about philoxenia, love of strangers. So the replacement of the fear of strangers, xenophobia, is philoxenia, is love of strangers, love of outsiders, not scared of outsiders, welcoming toward outsiders. It's this one, right? It's leaving the track, getting outside the loop, and loving the people who are out there. He's referring, when he uses this term hospitality or love to strangers, he's referring actually to this Old Testament story, a well-known story to his audience. He's writing to the Hebrews. They were familiar with these stories back there in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, Abraham, the father of the faith, it's the hottest part of the day. Abraham, the patriarch, looks up and he sees three men, uninvited guests, but here they are. Three men walking up and they're strangers to him. And he invites them and he says, come, come, rest under this shade tree. It's the hottest part of the day and I've got a beautiful shade tree. Just sit underneath this and try to cool off. And then he comes and he runs back and he brings water and he starts washing their feet. And then he says, you look, you look hungry. And he comes back with fresh milk and he comes back with fresh meat and fresh bread. And after he's cared for them and met all of their needs, they leave and he finds out later on that they were angelic messengers. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Sometimes when we care for people, we don't know the full import of who we're taking care of. Rosaria Butterfield shares how she came to faith in Christ in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And she was an unlikely convert because she was a former tenured professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. She was one of the founders of what would become the LGBT movement. She was a public intellectual with stunning gifts of writing and prose and argument. And she hated Christianity. She had some very strong opinions about what Christians believed. She had bumped into a, Christian, a few Christians who demonstrated to her that she was not far from the truth. She was living with her partner at the time. All of that until she wrote a, basically a hit piece against Christianity. It was a powerful, she used all of the uh, flair of her silver pen to write against Christianity. And she said, after I wrote that very public article, I got a comment back from a Christian pastor who said, I'm sorry what you've experienced of Christians. My wife and I would love to have you over for dinner. Pick a time. And she was struck by that. She said, 
So I took him up on it. She said, part of the reason I took him up on it was I was about to write another book about how toxic Christianity was. And she said, I needed to do my research. So I thought, well, I'll hang out with these toxic Christians together. They'll feed me and I'll watch it. And then I'll go back and write a book that flames them. And she said, I sat down at their table. She said, early on, because they met multiple times, she said, I winced at their prayers over the meals. And she said, I mocked and ridiculed their ideas across the table. And then she said, I would leave their house and the next morning I would go and teach my students at Syracuse and quote the dumb things that they had said to me the night before. She would later say this. It was the love demonstrated through hospitality that God used as a key to unlock my heart. Here's what she says. Hospitality in a post-Christian, isolated, lonely world is one of the most valuable gifts the church has to reach our society. You think about it this way, it's not our doctrine that makes the world curious, but our love. And didn't Jesus set it up that way? They will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. They will know that the Father sent me into the world. The credibility of the gospel is at stake. Get this right, love one another well and the world will see it. You think about this, when Peter says, and this is, a, this is a verse that is so often quoted when you're talking about evangelism and talking about defending the faith and standing up for the truth, is, is 1 Peter 3.15. And it says, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, here's just a confession to you. Maybe you're different than me. I keep waiting to be asked. And there's not a line forming. Now, I read chapter 3, verse 15, and I'm like, okay, where's the line? Where are all these people who are supposed to be lining up and saying, hey, Matt, explain that hope. Tell me about that. We keep asking, right? But here's the thing. Is your Uber driver going to ask, tell me where your hope comes from, generally speaking? No. Think about it this way. When do you reach the stages in a relationship where people get vulnerable enough to start talking about their hopes and talking about their fears? And the answer is at your table. The answer is in your living room, not at the evangelistic event where we just met you an hour ago and we're hoping that you'll ask us questions about our hope. Think about it. One paragraph, where do I get that? One paragraph before he says they'll start asking about your hope, he says this. Finally, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. So now... Where do you learn that someone's compassionate? Where do you learn that someone's humble in a five-minute conversation? No. He's saying they're going to see, if you bring them close enough, they're going to see you're a sympathetic person. You're, you love one another. You're compassionate and humble. They're going to get in close. They're going to see what Peter talks about in chapter 3 earlier on. Your endurance, your grit, your inward beauty over outward conventional beauty. You're not returning evil for evil. Now that makes people curious. That demands an explanation. That's what Peter is talking about. That made Rosaria Butterfield curious. She writes an article. She's like, what Christian reads an article that flames his or her faith and then says, come over for dinner? Who does that? So let's talk about mission. 
So Brook Hills. So we're in this two-year emphasis that we're calling Too Strong. Year one was about growing strong as a church. Year two is about going strong through our community. And hospitality is this piece. Hospitality is a gift to both the loop of Christian life and fellowship and the outer bounds of people who have not yet put their trust in Jesus. So a few things for us to think about. Number one, take time. Take time. Hospitality forces us to slow down, doesn't it? Here's the thing. This is not great, but I think it's sometimes a reality. Sometimes we want to point people to Jesus without having to spend time with them. Hospitality says, no, there's not a workaround here. Love the people. <laughs> know the, listen to these people. They're image bearers of a holy God. Lean in. Learn something in these conversations. Rosario Butterfield, again, she talks about radically ordinary hospitality. And I, I, I so appreciate the grace in this answer. She was in a, uh, an interview that was blogged. And here's the interview question. Is radically ordinary hospitality something every Christian is called to in every season of life? Note the grace here. No. There are seasons of life where such openness would be impossible. When we had just adopted a teenager out of foster care and she was deep in grief and anger, when my aged mother was dying of cancer, well, during such times our doors were closed and we were caring for our own. The key word is season. Seasons are supposed to change. Another key issue is this. Radically ordinary hospitality is never convenient. So a good question to ask yourself is, what is the difference between inconvenient and not possible right now? Isn't that so wise, so gracious, right? Grace feels so good in quotes like that, right? For some of you, year two of too strong that calls you to kind of leave the tracks and go outside lands at the perfect wrong time for you. You are barely hanging on to your own faith. There is plenty you're saying grace over right now, right? And so, so what's Hebrews 13 tell us to do towards you? It tells us to say, you be the one we invite over for the meal. Tonight, it's just you and us. We'll break bread. That said, so hard pivot, I don't have permission from Jesus to fill my life with so much hurry that I have no time for mission. Sometimes our plans of this coming week are good and they're all properly ordered. Wonderful. Sometimes they're good, but they're not properly ordered. Sometimes they're not, and his mission needs to override our plans. Are we looking carefully at our calendar, and does everything have a reason behind it? And is there a priority of mission that is still there? Number one, take time. Number two, eat a meal. So how would you complete this sentence? The son of man came. So basically a sentence that starts by telling you the incarnation happened for what reason? The Son of Man came. You know, the New Testament answers that question three ways. There are only three sentences that start with the words, the Son of Man came. Number one, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a purpose statement. Why did he come? He came to die. He came to die in your place. That's the gospel. Second statement. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Another purpose statement. Why did he come? He came to get the lost and bring them home. He came so that the lost could be found, to bring them back to God, to reconcile 
them to God. The third and final statement ends this way. The Son of Man came, Luke 7.34, eating and drinking. Now that's not a why statement. It's a how statement. It's his strategy. It's his method. He came eating and drinking and he did it so much that his critics accused him and his followers of basically all y'all do is eat and drink. Here's, just listen in, Luke 5, 33. Then they said to him, so these are critics of Jesus and his followers. They said to Jesus, John's disciples, so John the Baptist, fast often and say prayers and those of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. We've seen discipleship. We saw it in your guy, John the Baptist, and they fasted a lot and they prayed a lot. And that totally makes sense because that's what our guys do. It's the Pharisees do. We teach people to fast a lot and pray a lot. Then your guys come along and and what they're known for is eating and drinking with people. (laughs) What I love about Luke 5, uh, 33 is uh, it's old school Christianity. (laughs) Old school Christianity where missions meant eating and drinking with people, that that actually counted for mission work, right? Robert Karras wrote a famous book. He's a biblical scholar who did deep study of the gospel of Luke. And he, uh, he wrote his book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. And here's one of the things that he says. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So in every chapter, you just keep turning pages, he's at a meal, he's at a meal again, he's going to a meal, he's at a meal, he's, you know, it's just constantly he's hanging out with people. I love Luke 5, here's, here's what it says, this is going to be on the screen, notice this, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So, leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. So he's a Christ follower now. Verse 28, 29. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others. These are all the wrong people at the party. Large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isn't it striking the fact that Levi leaves everything behind and follows Jesus, and the next thing he does is host a banquet. His first impulse as a brand new follower of Jesus is, it's time to have a party, spread the table with some food, and invite all the wrong people over. That's his first impulse. You just imagine Levi saying, okay, I'll follow you. Where are we going? I'll do anything. I'll say anything. I'll go anywhere. And Jesus says, cool, invite people over. Cool, eat with people. <laughs> How accessible is that, right? That, that is within reach. That puts your two favorite things together, Jesus and food, right? It's right there, <laughs> How genius is God, right? We have these full schedules. We fill them up to our eyeballs and we say, Lord, I don't have time to build relationships for witness. And he says, okay, do you ever eat? How many times a week do you eat food? You got 21 new slots. You got 21 new ways to think about being a witness and being a light. 21 meals to think differently about, right? 
You can take that meal and you can loop around and be a blessing to your brothers and sisters because you had them over and they needed it. You can leave the track and go outside and you can have a meal where you shine as lights with people who have yet to believe in Jesus. Third, embrace ordinary hospitality. So I've referenced it here, but I would encourage you to read Rosario Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. And again, here's here's an exchange, a question and an answer that was asked to her. What role did hospitality play in your willingness to hear the gospel? Here's what she said. It made all the difference in the world, literally. Before I met Ken and Floyd Smith, I understood the gospel as a meta-narrative that depended on both ignorance and privilege. I did not see how God's love could hold up next to poverty, child abuse, racism, and violence. I did not see how the, quote, good news could be good for someone like me, an out lesbian feminist. It seemed like the gospel's good news was only good for people who already fit into a politically conservative worldview, people who never had to worry about the things I had to worry about. Also, the gospel's main point that Jesus will save me from my sins, had no receptor point for the postmodern Russo-abiding thinker I once was. What I needed and what I learned in the home of Ken and Floyd Smith was that I was an image bearer of a holy God and that such an identity came with responsibility as well as blessing. Weekly meals at the Smith house followed by Bible study and meeting other Christians who did not fit my stereotype, forced me to ask the questions that would lead to my turning from sin and trusting in Christ. Some modern evangelism books wear me out. They do. They, they sound to me like they're written by missiologists to missiologists ton of jargon about processes and models and contextualization, right? Tons of insider language, tons of apologetic chess moves. They move here, you move there, you know, rook takes. That kind of stuff, it's all over these kinds of books. And it all sounds so impressive and it all sounds so cutting edge. And Luke comes along and says, Jesus came eating and drinking. (laughs) Feel the force of that. Jesus ate meals with people. You think about year one and year two, and if you asked, how do I jump in with both feet into the beautiful things we've been talking about in year one, growing strong as a church, and the beautiful things we've been talking about in year two, going strong to our community, how do I jump in? And the answer is just three words. Eat with people. It serves both. It's the magic, it's the genius of God. So here's a writing prompt for you, journalers. If you picked up a journal a couple weeks ago, maybe you get one today, but get one of these two strong journals and here's a writing prompt for you this week. What's a next step I can take in practicing hospitality? What's a next step I can take in practicing hospitality? By the way, I don't know who needs to hear this, but don't be weird about it. (laughs) So don't, you know, don't invite people over who don't know Jesus and you say, so we, uh, we prepared, and I hope you enjoyed this four-course meal. Have you heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Uh, that's, uh, that's, a, that's what I would call a bad segue, all right? That's, that's forcing the issue. You're going to ruin it for the rest of us. That's basically the idea. Or don't ruin it for everybody. You're killing it for all of us. 
meals, it can, be, it can be this. It can be this train piece that takes the gospel both inside where it's needed and takes the gospel outside the church. When, think about it this way. When we send missionaries out from here, we gather around them and they go overseas to serve Jesus, oftentimes to share the gospel among people who, who don't know Jesus. And when we send them out and we find out six months later, they have so enveloped their lives into their neighbor's uh, lives that their neighbors have invited them over for a meal. And guess what we do? We go nuts. We say, you're already in. You've already built that level of friendship. You're being invited over. And yet, for some reason, when you have a meal with somebody here, where's the bells? Where's the celebration? You know, it's a celebration to sit down and have an opportunity to share a meal with people who don't yet believe. And that can be awesome on both sides of the Atlantic. Here's the beauty of it again. Two of your favorite things just collided in one place, Jesus and food. Gospel homes, gospel hospitality puts both Jesus and food within reach of the people around us. And that's kind of the magic of it. So can we as a church take a next step? Can you as an individual, as a family, wherever you are in whatever season of life, are there ways and what's that next step that we can take together to be a light to those around us?